Genesis chapter 49. We are going to take a look at how much of our past mistakes and bad decisions are we held accountable for. As we start out this this chapter, we're going to see that the first three blessings seem to be more of a curse. And it's based upon things that they did. So how much of the things that we did are we held accountable for? And can we ever overcome them? Did the blood of Jesus separate us from any consequences of these bad mistakes or bad decisions? So these are the things we're going to take a look at. Most of that we put up there on Facebook, if you're up there to, to read that. The last time we were here, we looked at Joseph's influence and how we can stay true to what God actually told us and what he actually taught us. Because we see that it can we can veer off of that. And Joseph's influence over his father, over the last years of his life, we saw a great change come upon Jacob. But here, let's begin at verse 1 in chapter 49. And Jacob called his sons and said, Gather together that I may tell you what shall befall you in the last days. Gather together and hear you, sons of Jacob, and listen to Israel, your father. Now, this is the first prophetic spoken word by a man that is recorded in Scripture. This is not the first prophetic word spoken by a man. Enoch has probably that one. I don't know about you all, but it is hot in here for me. Uh, Enoch, we know he has the book of Enoch, and we know there were a number of prophecies that he made. And it seemed that there were other people who had made prophetic utterances, but they weren't recorded. Moses didn't write those down for us in the book of Genesis until this one had come along. And this is done by, by Jacob. Now, God had spoken words of prophecy, and those things are written down. He spoke them two different ones. But this is the one, first one we have that is given by a man. He says in verse 2, Gather together and hear you, sons of Jacob, and listen to Israel your father. Now, he addresses himself in both names. It seems that he is uh, mindful of what God has called him to be, as well as who he is, who he battles. The Jacob is the part of him that he battles. Now, here's what's interesting about this. Jewish tradition tells us that Jacob was about to, as he was about to bless his sons, he had made mention that he was going to tell them something very important, a great secret about the end of time. But after he got done blessing the sons, the glory that was upon him lifted and he could no longer see it. Now, I know that some people look at this as just tradition gone, gone awry. But if we look at the blessings that are here that he utters on these sons, what he is actually able to do here is to see in the spirit realm the future of each of these tribes. He is actually able to look into the future and to see each of these tribes. Each of these tribes goes until the end of time. Each of them will. Because in the last week of Daniel, we are dealing with the 12 tribes of Israel. So they are still very much active, still very much going around. So if he saw their future, he may have very, very well have seen it all the way up until the end of time. He may have seen something that he wanted to tell them about, but when the glory lifted, he couldn't see it anymore. Now, you've all experienced that, haven't you? The glory of God came down. 
gave you revelation on something. Oh, that was, oh, that's good. Oh, I like that. I'm going to write that down and you forget to. Or you get busy with something and now you can't remember it. You can't see it anymore. And it could be something along that. But this was a very strong spiritual uh, experience for him in which he was able to see and he declares what he sees in these blessings. They're called blessings. Not all of them really come across as as complete blessings. But let's, uh, let's go on and take a look at these. Reuben, you are my firstborn, my might and the beginning of my strength, the excellency of dignity and the excellency of power. Unstable as water, you shall not excel. Because you went up to your father's bed, then you defiled it. He went up to my couch. Now, unstable as water, if water does not have boundaries, it just kind of flows all over. So that's what he's referring to. Uh, you have to you have to supply the boundaries for the water if you want it to stay in a, a certain area. So he says you're unstable as water and you shall not excel. He couldn't put boundaries up on himself. He couldn't keep himself in where he's supposed to operate. He decided to operate outside of that. Because you went up to your father's bed, then you defiled it, he went up to my couch. Now in the Hebrew, this is actually a double stating of the same thing. But it speaks of his, of the, of the past here. And actually the first, the first uh, three of these, it seems that Jacob is, um, almost, I'm mad at you for what you did, so here's what I'm gonna say. Except that he's in the spirit realm and he's seeing something, then these things do come about. So it would seem to be more than just, uh, he's mad. And he just, uh, says these things. So, it says he started with excellency, but instability, pride, lack of honor, and giving into the flesh desires compromised him. This is the same thing that's true of Christians today. We may have started with the, uh, excellency about us, but if we are instable as he was, if we are filled with pride or pride begins to build up in us, if we don't operate according to honor, and if we give in to flesh desires, we will be compromised as well, and our excellency will fall. This shows us the importance of walking in integrity, honor, and the ruling over of our flesh. We can't just let our flesh do whatever it wants to do. There's a lot of people who have uh, gotten involved in sins. They justify them. They say, well, God's in this because. But God is not in it. God has said in His Word, don't do these things. Uh, they're basically not ruling over their flesh. They're doing whatever their flesh wants and putting God's stamp of approval on it. And it will have future ramifications, just like it did here for Reuben. Now, he... Uh, in Genesis 35 is where we read about this, actually verse 22. He had a relationship with his father's concubine, Bilhah. There was the mother of his brothers, Dan and Nephtali. So the birthright was lifted from him and basically it was divided. Uh, most people see the birthright as being divided among the twelve, though Joseph seems to have picked up more of it than the rest. Usually the firstborn was the spiritual and social leader of the clan. We know that Joseph is the one who is the taking on that role among the twelve brothers. So the tribe of Reuben never did excel. 
as he looks down here at the future of this tribe, this tribe never did excel. There was no prophet, no judge, and no king that we know of that ever came from the tribe of Reuben. Just try and think of somebody from that tribe who did anything really significant. And uh, they didn't. So he had the potential to be excellent. He had all the right tools. He had all the right qualities, but he just let other things come in and compromise him. Just because people in the body of Christ have great opportunities, they can lose them. Uncontrolled passions. I have a quote here from Spurgeon. So a man may have great opportunities and yet lose them. Uncontrolled passions may make him very, may make him very little who otherwise might have been great. Uncontrolled passions may make him very little who otherwise might have been great. Verse 5, Simeon and Levi are brothers, instruments of cruelty, are in their dwelling place. Let not my soul enter their counsel. Let not my honor be united to their assembly. For in their anger they slew a man, and in their self-will they hamstrung an ox. Cursed be their anger, for it is fierce, and their wrath, for it is cruel. I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. Now this is the only one where the same... Again, they're called blessings. This really sounds more like a curse. This is the only one where the same one is pronounced on both. And these, uh, the reason for it is their sin, their misgiving, their, their uh, decision was joint. They both decided to do this. They both planned it out. And they both went after it. This one decision that they made has caused this thing to come to, upon them in which it says you you will be scattered. Now when it says for in their anger they slew a man we knew that from the story they slew more than a man. But in the in the Hebrew it would say this literally uh, man or a collective singular for men. It's the plural form in the Septuagint. In the Septuagint when they translate this into the Greek they use the plural form of it. But here in the in the Hebrew, that it has a uh, a collective singular for men. You don't see that form too often. Psalm one forty one four, Proverbs eight four, and Isaiah fifty three three all have that same form used. Now these were passed over entirely in the last blessings of Moses in Deuteronomy chapter thirty three. They were left off, and it may have been because of of this reason. So they had no independent allotment or territory in Canaan. In the dividing land, they only had a few cities granted to it within the borders of Judah. And that's in Joshua 19, verses 1 through 9. I'll just read a couple of verses here. In verse 1, the second lot came out for the clans of the tribe of Judah. In verse 9, the inheritance of the Simeonites was taken from the territory of Judah because the share for Judah's descendants was too large for them. So the Simeonites received an inheritance within Judah's portion. Their inheritance lay within the territory of Judah. So the Simeonites were were basically a pretty insignificant uh, tribe. First Chronicles 4.24-27 through 27 speaks of the smallness of their numbers, how small they had become. And I believe I have some... Yeah, the tribe of Simeon became small during the wilderness wanderings. They started out from Egypt being the third largest tribe. We take that from Numbers 123. According to the census they had there, they were the third largest tribe. By the time 
the wilderness wanderings are over and the census is taken some 35 years later, 63% of the tribe has vanished. And they are now the smallest of the 12 tribes. They were too insignificant to actually take a land. And so Judah said, we've got more than we need. We've already conquered it. Come on in here. We'll put you in this place. And so they were given certain cities in the land of Judah, but they were kind of scattered throughout the land of Judah. So they had territory that was, that was cities that were theirs, but they were scattered amongst, amongst Judah. So they had no real, uh, uh, set place like some of the other ones did. And of course we know about Levi, and we'll talk more about them here at the, at the end. Levi, of course, was scattered all about. They had no, no, um, uh, land either. Verse 8, Judah, you are he. Now I put this in as the longest blessing, but if you look at, uh, um, the one for Joseph. Joseph might be an extra verse longer than this one. But um, as I was looking at this, I've been working on this for a couple of days. So this one kind of was in there in the beginning and sure looked like it was longer than the rest of them. But Judah, you are he whom your brothers shall praise. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's children shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's whelp. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He bows down, he lies down as a lion, and as a lion, who shall arouse him? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet. Another way to read that is a lawgiver shall not depart from his sons. Until Shiloh comes, and to him shall be the obedience of the people, binding his donkey to the vine, and his donkey's colt to the choice vine. He washed his garments in wine, and his clothes in the blood of grapes. His eyes are darker than wine and his teeth whiter than milk. The uh, King James and a few others read that in a way that makes it tougher to understand, but the way they have it here in the New King James is actually a much better rendering of it. His eyes are darker than wine, and his teeth whiter than milk. Now we know that Judah made mistakes. He just suggests, He's the one who suggested a profit motive in getting rid of Joseph. Well, why kill him? Let's sell him. That was his idea. He did not deal faithfully with his daughter-in-law, Tamar. And that's in Genesis 38. And and uh, she came on out and pretended she was a prostitute. And so um, Judah went to her. And uh, when she was found to be pregnant, he's ready to put her to death because he doesn't like that all his sons keep dying because they get uh, her as a wife. Long story, go back to Genesis 37, 38. You can read all that. But he showed good character when he interceded and offered himself as a substitute for Benjamin. That was in uh, Genesis 44. So he made mistakes as well, but we don't see that mentioned. Now, in particular, I think it is odd, very odd, that of all the things that Joseph mentions, and he mentions the, the mistakes here of the first three sons that they had done, it seems unbecoming of him to not bring up the most glaring bad decision that they all made. They all made a one decision all together and it's completely left out of these uh, ones that we've read so far. And that is to sell Joseph and to lie about it. But here uh, Judah, it's, it's uh, actually quite a quite a good blessing. This one at least sounds like a blessing. So he gets a nice long blessing instead of a curse. 
This blessing is really about the greatest descendant of Judah. And we all know who that is. The Lord Jesus Christ. The bowing down, the lying, the scepter, the lawgiver, the Shiloh, this all speaks of the Messiah. This is all pointing to Him. They are called the lion. This is the first place where we see them referred to as a lion and they will pick that up in their in their emblem. They will put the lion into their, their flag, their banner. The scepter or the ruling part will not leave them until Shiloh comes. They will not be without a law, a law giver. Uh, again, you can read that as among their sons. In Revelations 5, 5, Jesus is called the lion of the tribe of Judah. So, this is all the way in the end. He is called the lion of the tribe of Judah. It really seems to lend itself that Jacob is able to see pretty far into the future of what these these guys are doing. He's able to speak about the land that they inhabit. He's able to speak about what they will become as far as their their tribe is concerned. And here he says a whole lot of things about the Messiah that will come. Now this leadership prophecy took some 640 years to fulfill and that began with the reign of David. He was the first of Judah's dynasty of kings. Up until then they did not have that and we know that the first king came out of Benjamin. The prophecy took some 1,600 years to completely be fulfilled in Jesus. Jesus is referred to as Shiloh. Um, it seems to be the thing that it, uh, it points to is, to, is to him. Now, from David until the Herods, there was a prince of Judah was head over Israel. Even in the Daniel captivity, we, we uh, looked at that some in Ezekiel. They kept going back to one of the, the princes as the uh, king of Israel. So even during that time, they had that. And they had some rule, self-rule, throughout all that time until about 7 A.D. In about 7 A.D., Rome took away all their self-rule and they were not even able to uh, execute someone as a, as a prisoner, which is why in Jesus' day they had to go before Pilate. We need to execute him. They don't have the right to do that. Up until about 7 A.D., they did. Now, what happened around 7 A.D., when that right was finally, finally taken from them and they had to realize... The scepter is no longer with Judah. The scepter is no longer ours. We are not ruling ourselves. We are being ruled. The Pharisees actually went around. This is around 7 AD. This is around the time Jesus is born. This may even be close to the time that Jesus was in the, uh, in the temple questioning the Pharisees. But they would be going around and they would be lamenting that the prophecy of Jacob did not come about because the scepter is gone and Messiah is not here. Now, if Jesus, at the age 12, knows that he's a bit going about his father's business, think about this. If Jesus was on the street and heard these Pharisees going about, because they do everything publicly. They want people to see them. And they're going around the streets of Jerusalem lamenting that this prophecy was not fulfilled. What's going on in the mind of Jesus? We don't get that at all in the, in the Gospels. We don't get to hear about that. We'll have to wait till we get to heaven to find out what had gone on. But I just wonder, was Jesus on the streets when the Pharisees were walking around saying, Oh, woe is us. This prophecy is not fulfilled. The scepter is gone and Messiah is not here. So at the time, the rabbis considered it a disaster. 
they do not believe till, still today that Messiah has come. And so they see this as an unfulfilled prophecy. That would be a problem, I would think. In, um, let me read that, that part again. Binding his donkey to the vine, verse 11, and his donkey's colt to the choice vine, he washed these, his, his garments in wine and his clothes in the blood of grapes. His eyes are darker than wine and his teeth whiter than milk. There, of course, we have reference of the blood and the, and the whiteness that uh, would be, that would come. Wanted to call your attention here, though, to verse 11 in particular. Binding his donkey to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine. In Matthew 21, verse 1, Now when they drew near Jerusalem and came to Bethphage at the Mount of Olives, then Jesus set two of his disciples, saying to them, Go into the village opposite you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied in a colt with her. Loose them and bring them to me, and if anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord has need of them, and immediately he will send them. All this was done that might be fulfilled, which is spoken by the prophet, saying, Tell the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming lowly and sitting on a donkey, a colt, a fowl of a donkey. So the disciples went and did as Jesus commanded them. They brought the donkey, and the colt laid their clothes on them and set him on them. The um, It would seem that not only is this a prophecy of what was spoken by the prophet quoted here, but it's also a fulfillment of the prophecy in which Jacob had prophesied. And he'd also talked about a donkey and a colt. In uh, verse 13, Zebulun shall dwell by the haven of the sea. He shall become a haven for ships and his border shall adjoin Sidon. Now, I have a couple of maps here for you. If you pull up the map one first. Um, oh, I did not get my pointer. To go back there at least once to get that. Thank you. Now, these are, if you go and look up one of your maps, this is where most maps have Zebulun. Right here in this middle area. Does Zebulun here touch the Mediterranean Sea? Does Zebulun on this side touch the Sea of Galilee? It does not. But if you look at the prophecy, Zebulun shall dwell by the haven of the sea, and he shall become a haven for ships, and his border shall adjoin Sidon. Now we know Sidon was a port city. But when they do these maps some of the places where they make the maps from are not exactly known. So this city might be here, it also might be here. A lot of times I run into that when we, we get into some of these Old Testament things and we're looking at a city, I'll, I'll check out some of the maps and some of the maps have it here and some of the maps have it here and, and it takes a little more research to try and figure out which is the more accurate one, which one looks like it is is more. Um, but here it's, it says it's going to be haven of the sea. He shall become a haven for ships. If you don't have any place to access the sea, how are you going to be a haven for ships? That would be a bit of a, a bit of a problem. Now, one of the things that the tribe of Zebulun is known for is its faithfulness to David. 
they supplied the greatest number of troops, soldiers for David's army, more so than any other single tribe. Then of Zebulun, there were 50,000 who went out to battle. They were expert in war and all kinds of weapons. Stout-hearted men who could keep ranks from First Chronicles 12 and 33. So somewhere, they, they settled somewhere in between here. This is very much in the, in the Gospels. And it says that it would touch both of the seas. There's a couple of ways to look at this. One is, this uh, map is correct. And what Jacob is seeing is more future. Uh, that might be, might be what it is. But if you will go to, let me see where I, uh, I know I wrote it in here somewhere. Um, okay, let me read this part before you first. Josephus, you all know him, he's the historian. He reported the tribe of Zebulon's lot, I'm quoting from the, the book here, the tribe of Zebulon's lot included the land which lay as far as the lake of Gennesaret, that is the Sea of Galilee, and that which belonged to Carmel and the Mediterranean Sea. Now Josephus, he was a leader of the course of the, the Jews, he was a historian. He, um, uh, while quoting from this, this book, Josephus as a leader of the Jewish forces in the Galilee in their fight against the Romans in the first Jewish war was certainly familiar with the history of the area he was defending. If Zebulon was indeed landlocked and neither on either the Sea of Galilee or Mediterranean Sea, one would wonder why Josephus would write such a description that alluded to both bodies of water. So if Josephus, who was a historian, who was uh, around the time of, of Jesus, if he writes that Zebulon and their territory was hitting both areas, then I would say that map is wrong. And that would be my guess. So Jewish tradition also supports the, the implication that Zebulon was a maritime tribe. Now, how are you going to get Jewish tradition to say that they are a maritime tribe if they are landlocked, as, as many of the maps have it right here? If you pull up our second picture, this is a picture of one of the banners. This is the, the banner that they would have carried out. That's an emblem that they would have had. This is the banner that they would have carried as a tribe. And they put a boat on it. Now, why would you put a boat on a landlocked tribe as a banner for that? So more than likely, there is a place that... Uh, that they had that had access to the sea. Quoting from Matthew, Leaving Nazareth, he, Jesus, went and lived in Capernaum, which is by the, the Sea of Galilee in the area of Zebulun and Nephtali. Let me read that to you one more time. Leaving Nazareth, Jesus went and lived in Capernaum, which is by the Sea of Galilee in the area of Zebulun and Nephtali. So pull back, uh, my map back up. If you will see the, the map that we have here, this is Nephtali. It would seem that Zebulun would have to come over here into this area of the Sea of Galilee, that it would have to be pushed out somewhere here so that both of these would border that. Otherwise, Matthew is writing something highly inaccurate. And why would he do that? If he lived there and Jesus taught from there... and. Apparently, a lot of Jesus' teaching around Capernaum and such things came from the area of Zebulun and, of course, the area of, of Nephtali. 
much of what he did was was over those areas. So let's go on here to verse 14. Issachar is a strong donkey lying down between two burdens. He saw the rest was good and that the land was pleasant. He bowed his shoulder to bear a burden and became a band of slaves. Now Issachar was a large tribe, third in size according to the Numbers 26 census. That's the one that had Simeon as the smallest. So they took over the third in size from where Simeon was. They became a band of slaves because of their size and abundance. They were often targets of oppressive foreign armies because they were one of the larger tribes. They would be targeted. So foreign armies would put them into servanthood. They, be, they became bond slaves. They, the meaning seems to be that Issachar was strong but docile and lazy. He would enjoy the good land assigned to him but would not strive for it. So therefore, he would eventually be pressed into servant, servanthood and bearing burdens for his master. That's according to Leopold. So as, as Jacob is looking into the future, he sees there are a large tribe, there are a strong tribe, but he has them lying down. Seeing that they're, they're kind of lazy. They're not putting everything that they have to, to work. Issachar is a strong donkey. They have strength. Lying down between two burdens. Well, if you're a strong donkey and there's two burdens to be carried, why are you laying down? Why are they not on you? He saw that rest was good. <laughs> no, not right now. There's a couple of burdens that need to be carried. And that the land was pleasant. And he bowed his shoulder to bear a burden and became a band of slaves. Now Dan shall judge, verse 16... Dan shall judge his people as one of the tribes of Israel. Dan shall be a serpent by the way, a viper by the path that bites the horse's heel so that its rider shall fall backwards. I have waited for your salvation, O Lord. Now Dan shall judge his people from the tribe of Dan. They supplied one of the most prominent judges. And that would be Samson. Now Dan was a troublesome tribe. This is probably why he's represented as the serpent. They introduced idolatry into Israel in Judges 18 and verse 30. Jeroboam set up one of his idolatrous golden calves in Dan. There's a little discrepancy. We, when we went through that before, we showed that it might be a second area, of, not necessarily the tribe of Dan, but there was a second area that might have uh, come in with that. But, but uh, later Dan became a center of idol worship in Israel. Amos 8 and 14 tells us about that. Now, some think that the Antichrist is represented by him being a serpent. But I don't see the Antichrist coming from Israel, so I don't, of course, agree with that. But just to let you know that some, some people see that serpent reference as being the Antichrist there. But uh, uh, we've gone over that before. I don't see Antichrist coming out of Israel, but I see Antichrist affecting Israel. Dan is left out of the listing of tribes regarding 144,000 in Revelations chapter 7 and 5, 8. But he's the first tribe listed in Ezekiel's millennial roll call of the tribes in Ezekiel chapter 48. The, um, Dan is just one of those tribes that, well, they, they were a problem. They just didn't seem to have a way to stand up. They sure didn't seem to be people who stayed on God's side for very long. 
Samson did come out of Dan, and surely he was, uh, and could have been a lot more than he was, but he was surely one of those who came against the Philistines and did much to um, free them from them. But if he would have followed his anointing, he could have done a lot more. Verse 19, Gad, a troop shall tramp upon him, but he shall triumph at last. The tribe of Gad supplied a whole lot of fine troops for the the uh, king of Israel and David. First Chronicles 12, 14 tells us about that. But it says, A troop shall tramp upon him in the days of Jeremiah, among other times, foreign armies oppressed the tribe of Gad. Jeremiah 49 and verse 1 mentions that. Yet victory would be his in the end. He shall triumph in the end. Now again, Jacob is looking, it seems to be pretty far forward. Now there is what is called a threefold alliteration in this, in this text. And it would make this read this way. Gad a press presses him, but he presses the heel. Uh, Keel puts it that way. Another one puts it this way. Troops shall troop on him, but he shall troop on their retreat. That's the uh, threefold alliteration that goes on. So he's, he's looking ahead on this. He's seeing that Gad... That he, that people shall come and they're going to tramp down upon him, but in the end, he's going to triumph. In the end, he's going to triumph. How many Christians have held on to things like that? Well, I know the enemy's coming right now and beating down on me, but I know in the end I'm going to triumph. And that's what God has to hold on here. Uh, verse 20, bread from Asher shall be rich and he shall yield royal dainties. So, uh, in Deuteronomy 33:24, Moses again took up this prophecy regarding Asher. Asher is the most blessed of the sons, and let him be favored by his brothers, and let him dip his foot in oil. Now, when it talks about the royal dainties, apparently the land eventually occupied by Asher was good enough to bring not only necessities but also luxuries. So the land there was a was a very good land. They had, they apparently possessed a very productive soil. So there was going to be much richness that would come from there that would produce bread, that would grow things. That is something that Jacob had seen about them. Now he's making prophecies about, for a lot of these, about their land, about where they're going to be or how their land's going to function. And yet at this time, they're not even in the land of Canaan. They have not drawn lots as to where they're going to be. So Jacob is seeing this. What an experience that must have been. Nephtali is a deer let loose. He uses beautiful words. I, I think I wrote in your outline for you. It gives godly words. Uh, the ASV, an English revised version, has Nephtali is a hind let loose. He giveth goodly words. Now, Nephtali's land is a key portion near the Sea of Galilee. We showed you that in the map. A region, again, where Jesus did much of his teaching and ministry. So, Joseph, or Jacob, must have been looking into the future and probably seeing some of the things that Jesus was doing there and saw the, the goodly words that were going on and described Nephtali's land in this way. I don't think we read that one yet. I mean, we'll read this one. Matthew 4, 12. 
Now when Jesus heard that John had been put in prison, he departed to Galilee, and leaving Nazareth, he came and dwelt in Capernaum, which is by the sea in the regions of Zebulun and Nephtali. It's just another place in the scripture where it talks about him going into the regions of Zebulun and Nephtali. That it might be fulfilled, which is spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying, The land of Zebulun and the land of Nephtali, by the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan Galilee of the Gentiles, the people who sat in darkness have seen a great light, and upon those who sat in the region in shadow of death, light has dawned. So again, Matthew is recording that both of these folks, sit, both of these tribes sit on the Sea of Galilee. In verse 22, we have the prophecies that begin on the most loved sons. Joseph and Benjamin, they were the favorites. Joseph is a fruitful bow. Now, of course, Joseph already had the blessing come on his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim. But now he's getting his own blessing too. So whatever blessing comes upon Joseph will befall the two sons. Even though the, uh, both the sons had a blessing spoken over them as well. A fruitful bow, and a better translation of that, because I don't know what in the world bow means. Uh, but I looked at a couple of the translations here. Young's little translation puts it, Joseph is a fruitful son. And when I look at that word, son is a, is a, is a good translation of it. A fruitful son by a fountain, daughter step over the wall. The CSB puts, Joseph is a fruitful vine. A fruitful vine beside a spring, its branches and climb over the wall. The New Living Translation puts, Joseph is the fowl of a wild donkey. That's one of the ways you can look at this, this word as being that of a wild donkey. And you'll see a lot of the translations that will carry that. But I think son is more fitting, uh, the way that Young's has put it. But that word does have a lot of different ways they can go. But I don't know about you. I see that he was a fruitful bow. I have absolutely no idea what we're, what we're talking about. So that's why I had to look that word up. Joseph is a fruitful son, a fruitful son by a well. His branches run over the wall. The archers have bitterly grieved him, shot at him, and hated him. But his bow remained in strength, and the arms of his hands were made strong by the hands of the mighty God of Jacob. From there, from there is the shepherd, the stone of Israel, and by the God of your father who will help you, and by the Almighty who will bless you, with blessings of heaven above, blessings of the deep that lies beneath, blessings of the breast and of the womb. The blessings of your father have excelled, the blessings of my ancestors up to the utmost bound of the everlasting hills. They shall be on the head of Joseph and on the crown of the head of him who was separated from his brothers. The first time he brings up that separation. So his blessing will come upon those that are descendants, but it would seem that some of this refers to the things that Joseph went through himself. It says that um, the archers have bitterly grieved him, shot at him, and hated him. Well, that sure would describe the life of Joseph and the way the brothers had treated him. And even after he left the brothers, there were other people who still came after him. You'll see here that Jacob gets into a number of names of God in these next parts. And the names of God we see is a mighty God of Jacob, the shepherd, the stone of Israel, the God of your father, the Almighty. What a refreshing change it is to see 
Jacob putting positive names on his God instead of names that blame him for all the things that have gone wrong in life. So that positive aspect we saw in the last chapter, we still see going on here up on his deathbed as he's getting ready to die. The um, a fa- a faithful son by a well, that part there by a well, it may refer to, to, to me, it refers to the deep relationship that Joseph has with his God and how that brought him through all the attacks and all the things that had gone on with him. And perhaps it is that Jacob is seeing that that aspect of Joseph will filter down into the sons and that there will be many there that will have that same deep relationship and will be able to withstand this because in the end times, many arrows will be coming to the tribe of the tribes of Israel. And if Joseph were to, Joseph's sons, all those descendants of him, were to stand up against them because they have that relationship with God like Joseph did and they're able to see the hand of God and the blessings of God where the people only see, like Jacob did, just the bad, that will carry them through much of what they're going to be going through here in the end. Now we had a nice long one there for, for Joseph. Pretty short one for Benjamin. Benjamin is a ravenous wolf. In the morning he shall devour the prey, and at night he shall divide the spoil. Well, pretty easy to see what that one is. He goes out hunting in the daytime and divides up what he got in the nighttime. Goes out the next day and gets some more. This is a tribe with a reputation for fierceness, and some of the stories that you will see in the Old Testament certainly bring that out. They were a fierce tribe. They do devour the prey. Some of the examples we see that come out of this tribe. Ehud in Judges chapter 3, 15 to 23. He was one of the judges that came, and he came out of this tribe, killing off many of the enemies of Israel. Saul, of course we know, he came up out of this tribe, killed off many of the enemies. He also began to turn on even the people of Israel, David in particular. Paul, Acts chapter 8 talks about the cruelty that, that he had towards the people of Israel against the things of God. Eventually he, of course, got um, uh, repentance along the road to Damascus and turned his life around, but we saw how cruel he was. So this is just talking about, as a, as a rule, the descendants here, they're very cruel. They're very harsh. They go out with war. You want them on your side for when you're fighting. There was a time when all Israel ganged up on Benjamin and there were great losses on the sides that we consider from the story to be the good side. Benjamin was was uh, basically defending homosexuals that were in the land. And the, the people said, we can't have that in the land. We need to come against that. And they said, we're not going to let you. And they uh, basically fought them off. And um, it was a very bloody battle. It was very fierce. Even though Benjamin was outnumbered, they uh, they inflicted... Uh, I believe two two losses to the northern tribes until they finally were were defeated. And then they had to go through some things to preserve that tribe, and to uh, because they basically killed all the men. Verse twenty eight. And these are the twelve tribes of Israel, and this is what their father spoke to them, and he blessed them. He blessed each one according to his own blessing. Now these blessings are a firm reminder that God will bring them through Egypt and that not a single tribe will be lost 
but that each would have their significance. It's not really recorded here as, as firmly as it may have been passed on, but Jacob probably told his, his sons about the experience he's having and what he has seen. And those sons probably passed it on to all the rest of them so that all through the time in Egypt, Jacob said this to us. Jacob saw this. He saw where we were going. No matter where we are right now, this is what he saw. This is where he sees us going. This is what's going to happen. We've got to hang on to that. We've got to believe that those words were true. Because in what they were going through in Egypt, it was very easy for them to see we're going to be wiped out here. We're going to die here. That we're not going to come about to that. But there were those people who took that word and hung on to it. There were those who let it go. But there were those who would have hung on to it. In the same way, we had to take all on the things that God has said. God has spoken this. God has said this. God has declared this about us. God has declared this about the times. Don't lose heart. Don't falter. Stay with it. In the same way that they could take heart, we can take heart. Verse 29, Then he charged them and said to them, I am to be gathered to my people, bury me with my fathers in the cave that is in the field of Ephron, the Hittite, in the cave that is in the field of Machpelah, which is before Mamre in the land of Canaan, which Abraham bought with the field of Ephron, uh, with the field of Ephron the Hittite as a possession for a burial place. There they buried Abraham and Sarah, his wife. There they buried Isaac and Rebekah, his wife. And there I buried Leah. The field and the cave that is there were purchased from the sons of Heath. And when Jacob had finished commanding his sons, he drew his feet up into the bed and breathed his last and was gathered to his people. So apparently he wasn't just doing this laying down. He must have been sitting up on the bed. And then he just went back to laying down and, and then he died. Now, much is uh, made that he asked to be buried here in this place. And it's easy to say, well, he wants to be buried next to Leah, not next to Rebecca. Rebecca was the more loved wife. Perhaps it was that Leah uh, developed more of the love for him afterwards. And here's, here's another note you can, you can kind of wonder about. Leah is buried in Canaan. Is that, does that mean that she didn't come on the trip to Egypt? Did she die in the land up, up there? I kind of think that she did come and make the, the trip into Egypt, died, and they went back and buried her, but just didn't make a big deal about it. They buried her in that, in that spot, and then they, uh, they came on back after that. I, I kind of see it as that way, because again, the dream that Joseph had, there was a father and mother present. And so if Rebecca wasn't there, more than likely it would have been Leah. It would have been present in the, in the group. I don't really think that he is, Jacob is asking to be buried next to Leah. I believe he is asking to be buried next to Abraham and Isaac. I don't think, I, I have a hard time taking anything about his relationship with Leah. Because if he's going to be buried next to Rebecca, well, she's kind of buried off by herself. Rachel, I'm sorry. <laughs> Rebecca, the one before. Thank you. Um, I think he, he more wants to be buried in the same place where the fathers were. And Leah just happens to be buried in there. Rebecca, of course, Rachel, she was uh, uh, buried. She died suddenly. 
on the on the trip after giving birth, and so they just had to find a place to to bury her, and she didn't get to be buried in this this place. Otherwise, he would have buried her there. At least I would I would think so. So I don't read too much into that. But what you can see though is that Jacob asked to be buried in basically what is an obscure cave in Canaan over a lavish tomb in Egypt. Because he is the father of the second highest ruler in the land. And we know what they do for the pharaohs. What do you think they would have done for him? He could have had a pretty nice tomb. And he chose not to have it. I don't know that Joseph was was pitching the idea, hey, you can be buried here. Because Joseph wants to be buried in the land of Canaan too. And Joseph could have had a very nice tomb in Egypt. And he says, I'm not going to do that. But he wants all the family to go on up and to bury him in the land of Canaan. Because that's where we are from. It is so easy for people, Christians, to get caught up in the lavish rich richness of the world we live in and forget the world we're going to. Jacob is not going to forget where we are going to. We're going to Canaan. I'm not going to get lost in the riches of Egypt, the grandness of what is here. Because that's where God called us. Sometimes as Christians, we get lost in the riches and the pleasures of this life and what this world has to offer. And we find Christians making compromises in how they live instead of doing what God said to do. Because I'd rather have a little bit of Egypt and have a little fun and always be mindful of Canaan. But he didn't do that. He said, take me back and bury me there. So, going back to our original question, how can we overcome the past completely? How is it that Reuben and the blessing curse that is put upon him that is carried out for the rest of his descendants' years, how is it that we can overcome. If the blood of Jesus Christ has washed all these things under the uh, under the bridge, so to speak, it's washed us clean. How does this happen? I mean, the, the brothers were obviously not living very close to God for most of their years, but by the time they came back to Joseph, they seemed to have made a change. Didn't that change cover the things that had gone on in the past? Why is it that they're still being held accountable for this decision they made? And I'm sure that's not the only decision they made, but this is the one that is brought up. How can we overcome the past? It seems an opportunity is given that somehow has, a, has its roots in the original bad decision. It will test our integrity, our courage, determination to seek God and do what he says is right. For the ten sons, they faced this when they came back down to Joseph and Joseph put them through what God showed them to do and they were able to overcome their past and it was never brought up in the things that Jacob had spoken over them. 
But Reuben failed to overcome what he did against his father because he did it with selfish motives. When he saw that Joseph was in the pit, he didn't want to save Joseph because it's the right thing to do because it would be good for my father. He did it for selfish motives. My father will like me again. I'll get in good graces with him. More than likely, something similar happened with Simeon and Levi. And they failed. I don't know what it was. We'll probably have to wait to get to heaven. But the pattern is there in the scriptures. Judah overcame his past failings by the way he selfishly put his life on the line for Benjamin and for his father's well-being. He didn't have to do it. But he did. And he made sure that his life was was put on the line. He put it on the line with his father. He put it on the line with Joseph. You can take me. You can kill me. But do not take this boy. Let him go back to his father. What really helped put this in perspective for me though what was spoken over Simeon and Levi. Because what was spoken over them was a curse. You will, you will not have an inheritance in the land. You will be dispersed. And for Simeon, Simeon never overcomes this. They have that curse. They're dispersed amongst the tribe of Judah and really have no, uh, not as strong as a identifying mark on the land. But Levi, what was a curse for Simeon turned out to be a blessing for Levi. Because though they didn't have an inheritance, God says, your inheritance is me. Your inheritance is the priesthood. It was originally God's intent to have a nation of priests. But there was an event that changed all that. At the foot of Mount Sinai, as Moses stayed up and the people saw him as being delayed, they said, make for us gods. And Aaron made for them two golden calves. And they partied. And they involved themselves in all kinds of things that they should not have as children of God. And Moses was sent down by God. Get on down there. I'm going to wipe them out. And when he gets down there at the bottom, he says something. Who is on the Lord's side? And the entire tribe of Levi stood up. The entire tribe. We talked to you about this uh, some time ago. Somehow the leaders of this tribe got everybody together when this was going on. We will not take part. We will not have a place in this. You all stay out of this. This is bad news. The entire tribe stayed out of it. How hard is that to get not just a few individuals, the entire tribe stayed out of what they were doing. When Moses came down and said, who was on the Lord's side? They didn't just jump on the Lord's side then. They've been on the Lord's side. We did not get involved in this. We did not go after this. So what you have is you have a whole group of people who had that curse put upon them in the blessing that Jacob left upon them, then that you shall be scattered. And God, because of what they did, because of that one thing they did, God was able to take that curse and turn it into a blessing. All right, you're going to be scattered, just like it said. Just like Jacob saw, you're going to be scattered, but you're going to be scattered as priests. You're going to have a role that no one else in the country will have. I intended them to, but no one else will have it, just you guys. I will be your inheritance because of the one decision that they had made. 
They stayed out of the idol worship. They made that decision. That was a dangerous decision because people were dying. We showed you uh, some of the, her was was killed because of this this uh, debauchery they got into, and he would not concede to making this this idol. And when he died, Aaron decided to conform. He didn't want to, but he decided to conform, and he made these these things for him. He didn't stand up to it. Her did, but this whole tribe did. Even though it was not popular, they decided not to conform and not just to go along with what was happening. Some decisions or mistakes that we make have greater consequences than just missing it. And it seems to take more than just repenting to get back. Not to get back into what you're, that you're saved, but to get back into the place and the direction that God had. We saw this at the rock with Moses the second time he came to it and he struck it instead of speaking to it. We saw this with Elijah at the cave. Achan with the stolen goods. David with Bathsheba. Peter's betrayal. Even Ananias and Sapphira. Some things that people did, some decisions that they made, took their life in a way that was very consequential. There was something that they needed to do and they didn't do. And it changed the way they would follow the call. I can't tell you all those decisions that are going to be in your life. I can't tell you all the things that are going to happen in which this decision will take you off the path that God has for you and put you in a different one. Not all decisions that we make, all mistakes that we make will take us off. Some of them just we need to repent and go on. But there are certain ones that will come up that God says you came to that decision place and you went the wrong way. And for most people in the Word, God gave them a second chance to come to that same decision and to do the right thing. And it steered them back in Judah did it. He put himself at great risk, but he steered himself out of all those things and all those mistakes that he had made. And they weren't brought up when Jacob was looking at his future. The way they were for Reuben and for Simeon. And Levi, they were able to make that change. I don't know that they knew that they were making that change at the time. But it's that one act and made a change that turned what would have been a curse into a blessing. Just because we came under a bad decision doesn't mean we're stuck in it all the time. But we do need to get ourselves ready. Peter, when he denied Jesus, when the disciples denied Jesus, they were not ready. Jesus tried to get them ready. Pray that you don't enter into temptation. They all slept. There is some preparation we need to do to get ourselves ready. Because we don't know when the day comes. But the day comes, decisions are made. We look at people that we don't know that they made a wrong decision. But when Daniel came to the place with the sacrifice, the meat that was sacrificed to idols, he made a decision 
when it came to the place of praying to God, he made a decision. When Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came to a place of bowing, they made a decision. So many people in the Word of God made a decision. They stayed in the right place and it took them where they needed to go. Elisha, when Elijah came up to him and draped the mantle over top of him, he made a decision. And it was a good one. There are times in our life where it's a pivotal spot. We don't always know it's a pivotal spot. But our spirit will be telling us, this is the decision you need to make. This is the direction you need to go. And sometimes Christians make the wrong one. And they steer away from them because of fear, anxiety, worry. They don't do what was in their spirit to do. And that can take you out of the place that you should have been. It took Reuben out of where he was supposed to be. And though he could have been an excellent son, it changed the destiny of where his whole clan was going. But he didn't. This is not a generational curse. This is a decision that takes us out. This is a decision that we make. Other people begin to to pattern after and other people would begin to pattern after what Reuben did. And other people would begin to pattern after what Simeon did. But we can change if we get ourselves ready. Father God, I know I will come into that decision again. And I will be ready. I don't know that Judah knew exactly that what he was doing was going to change anything. But he knew it was the right thing to do. And he made the decision. If we weren't ready the first time, make sure you prepare for the next. Remorse is not what helps. Preparation does. If ever you think, I had a decision, I didn't make the right one, just know you will probably be given another opportunity. Make the right one. Go with what's in your spirit. And follow after the things that God has for you. Father, we thank you that you are the God of the second, sometimes even a third chance. There are some situations in our life that will have more repercussions than others. Some things are just sins. But some things steer our life in a completely different direction. It could take us out of what you intended. You'll have a way to get us back in. But we need to make that way. We need to do the thing. Just like David heard the words from the prophet when he made his decision. You have given the enemies of Israel an opportunity. We don't want to give the enemies of God an opportunity. An opportunity to compromise us. An opportunity to take us out. An opportunity to hinder the kingdom. To hinder the people that you put in. To hinder the purpose that you've given us. Father, I thank you that you help us. I give you the glory and the praise for it in Jesus' name. Amen.